Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This series contains discussions of themes that might be distressing for some listeners. It's like a nightmare. Even living in Gaul is like a nightmare. There's so many memories on that, you know. Close my eyes at night and I still see them, you know. Sometimes I do think he's still there, but he's not. It's the reality of it all. And what do you want to happen? Oh, I want someone to listen. Yeah. The Boy in the Water is a newsroom.co.nz production. Mysterious circumstances, improbable theories, a debacle of a police investigation, and a small town on edge. What really happened to little Lockie Jones? Kia ora, I'm Melanie Reid, Newsroom's Investigations Editor. Welcome to the ninth and final episode of our podcast, The Boy in the Water, The American Detective. It's been three years now since our team began investigating the story of how the body of three-year-old little Lockie Jones ended up in a sewage oxidation pond on the outskirts of Gore. Covering this case has involved many hours of research, legal wrangling, securing documents, interviewing forensic and investigative experts, private investigators, ex-police and a lot of time staying at motels in Gore. Luckily, I really like Gore. 
For now, though, I'm back in my own house on Auckland's west coast. It's the final episode for this season, and I'm about to interview, via Zoom, former forensic detective Karen Smith from the US. Her involvement in this case is an extraordinary development as we get ever closer to finding the truth of what really happened to little Lockie Jones. So Karen, thank you very much for finally doing this interview with me. Um, Welcome. I've been quite persistent, haven't I? You are anything of persistent, Melanie Reed. Yes, and I appreciate that about you. Yeah. So I've read your background. I've done my research. Listen, any woman who gets arrested in Fiji and thrown in jail and then does high tea with the prime minister is okay with me, my dear. <laughs> I've done my research on you. I think to start with, we need to ask how on earth, why on earth is a retired forensic detective from Florida doing the Lockie Jones case in the South Island, you know, at the bottom of the world. How has this eventuated? Oh, that's a story in itself. Um, I have a friend, a a very dear friend in New Zealand. This particular dear friend uh, made me aware of the Lockie Jones case probably close to a year ago. And, you know, I do pro bono work for a lot of cases. Um, I'm a very blessed person and I don't need the money. So to take my skills and gifts that I've been given and pay it forward is sort of how I look at it. So I did a video walkthrough with Paul Jones and his friend, Karen McGuire, um, a full walkthrough uh, from the area at Salford Street all the way down to the second oxidation pond where Lachlan was found. And when I saw how, how difficult of a walk it was and how far it was, um, you know, I told Paul, I said, I, I agree with you that there's there's things that just don't make sense here. And that's when I started working on the case. Can I right. just take you back a little bit, Karen? <laughs> Can you just tell me about your experience? Like, who are you? Where did you work? What are you doing now? Who am Helping I? With- <laughs> Karen Smith is a retired detective from Jacksonville and is currently a lecturer at the University of Florida for the Graduate Forensic Programme. She's seated at her home office. Behind her, some of the police badges from her illustrious career. She looks exactly as you'd expect a hotshot female detective from a CSI TV show to look. Uh, I was a major case, major crimes detective, meaning I could handle anything from a a burglary all the way up to a police-involved shooting or a mass murder or anything like that. So that would make me the lead forensic detective on those cases, and I I worked a lot of them. Um, Somewhere upwards of 500 death investigations, um, other calls per service around 15, 20,000 of them. So I have a wealth of experience to bring to Lockie's case. Once I retired, I went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. I was the training consultant for the National Forensic Academy. Now I do the pro bono work, I do case work. Do you think that the police in Gore in Southland should be a bit nervous with your credentials? They, they make me slightly nervous. You know, I, I don't know. I can't speak for how they will feel. I think that um, 
I'll be very forthright and say that a lot of mistakes were made. I think that a lot of things have been overlooked. And I think that a lot of things, um, a lot of conclusions were, were hasty and perhaps incorrect. Yeah. Is that you being generous? Because I, I've called it a complete debacle. <clears throat> yes, it's me being generous. Yeah. I mean, okay, let, let me phrase it a different way. What do you really think? What do I really think? All right, you're asking for, for, for the Karen and Karen to come out. Um, when you do an investigation of any kind, it involves investigating. That means digging, searching, asking, questioning, um, you know, proving. You know, the, the vast majority of that is missing here. And that, that's a huge problem. So yeah, it wasn't what I would call a thorough investigation. It wasn't an investigation at all. It was an immediate conclusion. Yeah. So how dangerous is that in your world, coming to an immediate conclusion? Well, I think it's a dangerous thing to allow bias into an investigation. You can't allow that to happen. Your job is to look at everything for what it is and form your conclusions. And if you have to change your mind based on something that you found, you change your mind. That's your job. Your job is to speak for the victim. And I don't believe that, that they spoke for Lachlan Jones at all. So the end result of that is what? Not knowing what the conclusion really is. Not, not knowing. Leaving questions. Leaving open-ended questions that shouldn't be there. They should have been asked and answered by now. And they're not. And that's the problem. That's why I'm here. That's, that's why I'm trying to find the answers for, for Lockie. You know, or I work for the victim, I work for the court, and I work for the truth. Those are the three things I work for. So, so you're not getting paid? No. Pro bono, that's a Latin word, isn't it, for like working for free? For free, that's right, and that's fine. You might get quite a few other calls from New Zealand. <laughs> In her years as a forensic detective, Karen Smith dealt with child drowning cases as well as child death cases that appeared to be drownings but turned out to be something different. When I see a case like this where there are so many unanswered questions and you have a three-year-old little boy, a three-year-old little boy who was found deceased in a sewage pond and nobody knows how he got there and nobody knows what happened, oh honey, that's a case, you've got my attention. That's a baby case, it's what we would call a baby case. What's you that? don't quit. A baby case, ch children, infants, anything involving a, a child that needs care and control. They are literally at the mercy of who has their care and control. That's a baby case. Um, you don't forget those. You do everything that you can in your power to find the truth, to find the answers. That's, that's why I'm here. You sound emotional. <clears throat> It's hard not to, Mel. I mean, I, you know, I've dealt with, with children's deaths. They, they stay with you. They don't go away. And for Lockie Jones, that sweet little boy, and nobody, it, it pisses me off. I'll tell you, the emotion is coming from anger and frustration because, and I just be, can I just be really blunt? Sure. 
Nobody with authority gave enough of a shit to find out what really happened. Well, I'm going to. Come hell or high water, I'm going to find out what happened to that little boy. So, yeah, it does get me emotional and it does get me riled up and it does piss me off because it's unconscionable that there are still questions that remain on this case. So let's talk about the system failure when it comes to this case. Just the one? Well, no, I've got all afternoon and it might take you that long. It was a number of system failures. That's the problem. From the immediate conclusion of the initial investigators that this was an accidental drowning immediately immediately that conclusion and then I talked about the bias and how that drove that forward you know pounding the square peg into a round hole to fit with that accidental drowning scenario that they came up with immediately the second one was uh, in the report for the coroner which I've read thoroughly uh, where they did not request a full forensic post-mortem. Now, here, here's my, my conundrum at this point. I have to tell you, and I know you that you know this, but I am under a strict confidentiality agreement with the coroner's office not to reveal anything about the second investigation. Just for my listeners, can you explain yeah. why you are confined by the New Zealand coroner, that you are now the nominated person on this case? And you've been given all the files from New Zealand. Is that correct? I I suppose um, I availed myself to the coroner. I wrote a letter that I would keep the second investigation file in strict confidence. Uh, That file was couriered to me and I'm in possession of everything. Um, So, yes, I I get in an official capacity working with the coroner on this case. And I have submitted... um, four separate reports now. I think one was, I don't know, 46 pages. And then another one was about 150 pages. And then the next one was like eight pages and then a PowerPoint. So the coroner is in possession of everything that I've sent, all of my analyses, all of my observations, all of my professional opinions. So I I have not heard anything as far as uh, what they're doing with it, where they're at with it. The case was investigated once, as we know, and it was case closed, died from drowning. The second investigation is not public, but it's been right. sent back to the coroner. And and for some of us, we always get a bit exasperated by all these cases being sent back to the coroner. It feels like they're thrown into a into a dark, dusty corner, and then it allows everybody, especially the police, to say, well, we can't talk because it's with the coroner. Uh, Yeah, I kind of got that feeling. What I can tell you is that if I email that office, they do get right back to me. They haven't answered all of my questions. I I don't know that they're encumbered to do so, Um, but I know that they are in possession of all of the stuff that I've sent. But that's, that's all I can tell you. So you are now like the nominated person, like like the lawyer, if you like, or the legal representative for Paul Jones. Yes, I guess you could say that. I mean, it's just sort of in a 
known capacity between the coroner and myself and Paul Jones. It's quite unusual for us to see a retired forensic detective in the States uh, dealing with a New Zealand case and dealing direct with the coroner. If they want to take my information and run with it, I hope they do. I hope that I've provided the coroner with some new questions and information. Um, you know, it's a professional respect thing. And uh, so I'm appreciative of that, that, that they've put that in my hands can, and can uh, you, trusted, me, trusted me with that. Can you summarize what your investigation into this case has found so far? <laughs> oh, 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 that's a loaded question. <laughs> I'm good at those. You are. You're good at those. Um, you know, I, I can talk a little bit about some of it. I want this to to be fully investigated by the coroner for, for him to have all the information that he needs to make his decision. So I don't want to jeopardize that in any way. Um, you know, if you have something specific, I'm going to pretend like I'm on the witness stand. Do you have a specific question in mind, Mel? <laughs> oh, I have quite a few, actually. Okay. There's the really obvious stuff, which is there are no marks on Lockie's feet, right. um, that the dog didn't find his scent, um, until like 40 metres from the pond. We can talk about that. We can talk about that. Um, that was another big problem for me. And I did consult um, a colleague, 15-year canine handler, just to be sure. I always get my stuff peer-reviewed. You know, you don't have to take my word for it. When I found out that Lockie had a, a soiled diaper, nappy, and he was barefoot. Um, the allegation was that he climbed the wood palings of the fence to get across uh, Grasslands Road to the pond. I thought, okay, well, if he's got a dirty nappy and bare feet, that is a fantastic source of scent for a, a, a dog to track, that's trained to track human scent, right? When I found out that the canine only alerted about 40 meters out, I went, well, wait a minute. Where's the rest of it? And when I read the report, it said that the area had been contaminated by the number of people and the amount of time that had passed. And I went, no, 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 no. There were very limited numbers of people across that fence. Very few people crossed that fence. So that wasn't contaminated. And my canine handler contact said, that makes no difference at all. If you are dealing with a child with a dirty diaper and bare feet, as soon as he went through all those um, bushes, that scent would have been left in those weeds, on those plants, and on the fence. I mean, he can't climb the fence without his rear end, with that dirty diaper, touching the fence, with his, without his feet, his hands, his arms, his legs, touching the fence. And the scent should have been immediately tracked to his location, not just 40 meters out. The whole, what was it, 350 some odd meters down to the South Pond. So, so yeah, that was a big problem for me. So, so what we know is that the dog didn't pick up the scent for 40 meters. What does that tell you? Well, you know, as an investigator, that would have been a huge question in my mind as I'm at the scene. Right. Well, wait a minute. When did you pick up scent? Oh, right over there. Well, he's three. How, how did he get there? If you didn't pick up scent 
from the fence line all the way down the west side of the ponds or on the paddocks on the other side where he may have climbed over somewhere else, that dog should have tracked Lockie, especially with a dirty diaper. That tells me he may not have walked out there on his own. That Does possibility that opens up, co co completely opens up. To him being carried out there? Yes. Yes. So he was found, his little head and arms were under the water and his knees were bent. Yeah. He was face up. Let's talk about drowning face up. And I also want you to tell me what your view is of his legs being bent, because isn't that highly unusual? Yeah. Uh, let's start with... Um the face up or supine position, most, now preface this, most drowning victims will be prone, meaning face down. That's called the dead man's float, okay? It, the water, if it's, if it's fast moving water or there's turbulence in the water that can cause a body to overturn, that's one thing. Normally when somebody drowns, they will turn face down. It's not unheard of to have them face up. It's just very, very unusual, okay? So that's the first thing. Not only was he clothed, he had this really heavy diaper. So that's literally gonna pull his body to the bottom of that water, right? And that leads me into um, his knees being bent. In the canine officer's report, the canine officer was the one that found him quote unquote, at the edge of the pond. That was a huge clue for me. In his report, it said, I saw something at the edge of the pond. Shined his light, Lockie's knees were barely visible above the surface. The rest of his body was underwater. Well, if you picture that in your head, if he's got a heavy diaper and clothes on and bodies sink once they're waterlogged, well, why didn't he sink? He did at the edge of the pond. The pond water at the edge of the embankment was 29 centimeters deep. If you picture a child with bent knees at the edge of the pond, that tells me forensically and logically that his back and his feet were resting on the pond bottom and his knees were barely visible above the surface. If he was out deeper in deeper water, there's no way that canine officer would have seen his knees. He would have been under the water. So forensically, I went, okay, so if he's at the very edge of the pond and his knees are visible, why didn't he stand up? Was he knocked unconscious? So then I went back and looked at the, the, the postmortem that was done. They didn't open his head, but there were descriptions of his head with no bruises, no marks, no lacerations, no scratches, no abrasions, no nothing. And I went, well, if he's knocked unconscious, there's going to be evidence of that somewhere on his head. There wasn't. So that was another link forensically and investigatively that he, he may not have drowned, that he may have been placed into the water. This really isn't making any sense at all. How do you have all of these things happening one after the other after the other?
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So that actually takes us to the stone cold aspect right. of the case. There is a former paramedic that talked about touching Lockie and him being stone cold or frozen, absolutely frozen. So there are suggestions that he may have been there way longer than the few hours that he was missing and then found. Yeah, it's it's a legitimate question. And, you know, you're, you're talking about people's reactions and touch. That's subjective. It's legitimate, but it is subjective. Okay, ice cold, stone cold. It's a subjective thing. So I have to look at hard data. What we do know is that the temperature that night was around 30 degrees. The water temperature was approximately 66, 67 degrees. It's like 19. Yeah, sorry, that was Fahrenheit. So what that tells me is that, you know, there are, you have to have certain data points to do the calculations to find out an estimated time since death, or at least an estimated time since being in the water. But you have to have the data points. And unfortunately, I didn't. It does sort of hit me funny that that a, a child would still be stone cold and frozen um, after being pulled from, you know, 19 degree water, it's a question. It's a question that wasn't answered. That's another question that wasn't answered. What about the COLA report? We got Lockie's body sample slides sent to the UK. You, you're familiar with that report because it's been sent yep. to you. Uh, and I think one of the most compelling things was that there was no water in his lungs. Right. Yeah, that's a huge problem. Dr Kola is an independent forensic pathologist from the UK specialising in suspicious deaths who we engaged to review the original 2019 post-mortem finding, which was death by drowning. 
Dr. Kolar also said that a third party cause of death could not be ruled out. That's huge. So he's saying there's not enough information to rule drowning as a cause of death, and he doesn't have enough information to rule out a third party cause of death, meaning somebody else was involved. Well, again, these are unanswered questions. So that's why I'm sitting here with my hair on fire. I just probably just need to say one thing, which is that, that we also know that there is a small chance that people do drown that don't have water in their lungs. But it is a big red flag, is it not, that he had no water in his lungs? It, it is a huge red flag taken in context with everything else that, that we know. Yeah, it's a huge problem. And face up drowning, that's unusual. Right. So we've got two things that yes. are unusual. That's correct for me, yeah. Yeah. What we do know is that the wrong person was engaged to do the post-mortem. Right. Right. A general pathologist who was apparently uh, reluctant and did not want to uh, did not want to do an autopsy on a child. Correct. So, right. Yeah, that's a problem. So the forensic pathologist who should have done it in Christchurch didn't get the email? Well, from what I understand, uh, that forensic pathologist's phone number was readily available to the police. They didn't use it. Uh, that forensic pathologist did not discover the email until the following afternoon uh, during his normal course of business, at which point the postmortem was already underway. That's how I understand it. And that, you know, why would you just send an email? You have a three-year-old little boy found dead in an oxidation pond 1.2 kilometers away from his house. That's not suspicious to you? Why was this not treated as a homicide until proven otherwise from the start? That is something you learn in Crime Scene 101. When we go through all the key pointers, you get to the point where you're going, okay, system failure, failure, system failure, 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 failure. You know, even the witness statements, even with the cell phones pinging in East Gore and the witnesses are saying they're in South Gore. I mean, it's just one after the other to the point that you go, look, is there something else going on here? Well, yeah, there's the bias again. Well, we'll just ignore the East Gore cell phone. Well, how can you ignore it? Why would you ignore something like that? Why didn't you question, why is this cell phone all the way over here when, when they're supposed to be over here? Why are you not questioning these things? Why are you not going back and asking these people questions? Why? See, I can't, I can't wrap my head around these failures because it's just so, they're so egregious over and over and over again. You've seen the second investigation, is it any better? I can't talk about it. But I'm gathering that it's not. I can't talk about it. I, ca I cannot say a word, and that's because I don't want to jeopardize anything. I just, of course I literally you can't. I understand that. But can I just say, if some of these things had been readdressed, I doubt that you would be as upset as you are. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. 
So let's okay. talk about the mother's statement to the police. There's this period of time between 2.30 in the afternoon when she picks up Lockie from Kindy to the evening. Yep. And there's right. just this gap in the statement. And, and the police haven't addressed that either. They haven't said, hey, where's Lockie? Right. Um, when I was going over the, all of the statements uh, and I read his mom's statement, there are gaps. There are, are huge gaps. Um, you know, according to her statement, Lachlan went to kindy that day. He got out about 2.30, uh, hugged his friends, and then it skips time. Um, Mom went to the courier depot for work. Um, other person in the house went to work. Well, where was Lachlan? Where was he? And then we skip three hours of time to, to 5.30. Well, that's three hours of time that Lockie's not accounted for. If everybody's at work, where was Lockie? Where was he? Nobody has given his care and control. Who had care and control of Lachlan Jones after Kendi? Where did he go? What was he doing? Who was he with? They didn't even ask her. Where was Lachlan? And th this is where you start breaking down what actually happened. There may be a legitimate place that Lachlan was. I just don't know what it is. And it wasn't addressed. Do you think that it is unusual that the sub-area commander, who is Cynthia Fairley in Gore, did three interviews? They were Lockie's mum and Lockie's two half-brothers. Well, that would be akin to maybe my lieutenant or my assistant chief doing interviews, which never happens. You know, the detectives do the interviews, not not the commanders or the subcommand, whatever you guys call it in New Zealand. Assistant chief, chiefs and lieutenants, they're paper pushers. They were basically donut getters for us, to be really honest with you. If we needed coffee and bagels, they'd run and, and get it for us. Have you told them that? We, 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 yeah, absolutely. And we appreciated it, right? But I do but, know that there were plenty of investigators and officers and detectives assigned to this case based on the other statements where a commander didn't necessarily have to do that herself. Why, I don't know. In my opinion, they're also substandard interviews. If that's how you conduct a, a, someone giving a police statement, that, that's pretty concerning, is it not? What I can say is that when somebody said something that didn't make time sense didn't make general sense they weren't apparently weren't questioned about it that's your job is when somebody's telling you something and it doesn't make sense you formulate a question to get the omitted information that's the job of an investigator i think that one of the sticking points in this case has always been what has really been the foundation, I guess, of the police case, or the cornerstone, mm -hmm. if I can put it that way, is the mm -hmm. witness who says that they saw Lockie yeah. on the corner of Grasson's Road. Right. Um, this was the information, I'm going to read this, that drove the initial investigation and their conclusion of accidental drowning. Now, I have my opinion. The listeners are smart. They can make their own opinion. They can decide for themselves when they hear what I'm about to tell you. These are excerpts of that witness's statement. The statement that drove the investigation about spotting of Lockie at the corner. 
Okay? These are all quotes. I don't really know the little boy. I think it was around 8.30 p.m. At first, I thought he was my other neighbor. He was running quite fast. I didn't get a very good look. I only got a quick look at him. I saw a glimpse of Lockie again. I only got a quick glimpse of him. He'd slowed down and was either going a bit slower, running or walking. He was standing at the corner. I couldn't really see his top very well, but I think he was wearing one. I think I saw shoes on his feet. I think they had a white sole, but I didn't see much of them at all. Does that sound like the statement of somebody who is absolutely 100% sure that the child they allegedly saw was Lachlan Jones? Does any of that scream at you that this person was 100% solidly, absolutely, unquestionably sure that that was Lachlan Jones? This is an extraordinarily weak eyewitness statement. This is not one that should have ever been used, ever, under any circumstances, as the sole information in any case, ever, let alone the questionable death of a child. Not one thing in that statement that verifies Lockie's identity, not one thing in that statement substantiates this alleged sighting, not one thing is definitive. No questions were asked about the 8.30 time frame to rectify that situation since it contradicted with the time that he allegedly went missing by 30 minutes. Nobody questioned this witness about information saying this witness saw shoes on that child's feet. If there were shoes on that child's feet, it wasn't Lachlan because he was barefoot. Nobody asked any questions about that. They just ignored it. So can I ask you, have you had linguistic statement analysis applied to the Lockie Jones case? Yep. And? I uh, did a Zoom call with 17 professionals, all of whom signed confidentiality agreements. These are ex-FBI, ex-Scotland Yard, medical professionals, social welfare people, child services, protective people, 17 of them with ungodly amounts of experience, a lot more than me. Forensic linguistics analysis is a criminal investigation tool used to examine language, both written and spoken, to help detect whether suspects and witnesses are telling the truth. They concluded, and I'm not going to tell you whose statement they looked at, could have been one of many. What they said was, there are huge problems here, they said that these are the questions that should have been asked of this person. Um, this person is being untruthful. This person is obfuscating, meaning not telling the truth, meaning omitting details, um, and basically agreed with, with most of my assessment and also gave me additional information that, that they noticed as well. So. Are you closing in on this case? All I have done is is done my assessment of everything that I could at this point, sent that off to the coroner's office. I'm waiting. I have no idea. All I know is that I'd like to rectify some of the glaring problems in this case as best I can and, and mitigate the damage that's been done. 
people who loved Lockie have been shattered by this case. I can't fix that. I can't bring Lockie back. What I can do is try to find the truth, try to find answers that haven't been uh, sought at this point. That's my job. Do you think you know what happened? Yes. And? No, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. I can't. But I'm gathering that it is not that he walked out there and drowned. If that was my conclusion, I'd tell you. I've just got one more thing on my list. Can you cope? Yeah, you're going to Colombo me or what? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Have you talked to any witnesses or any people pertinent to this case that have helped you in any way formulate your opinions about what has happened? Absolutely. I've questioned new people that the police never spoke to. Yeah. And, and I'm waiting for other people to come forward. You're telling me that you have questioned new witnesses, people that have come forward to you. Right. Has that helped sort of nail a few things for you? The answers that I am getting from credible, who I consider to be credible people, uh, is pushing my investigation one direction at this point. What does one direction at this point mean? Well, you know, when I started, Mel, I had to consider everything. I had to consider the possibility of an accidental drowning. It was on the table. Everything was on the table. Everything that I found from the two respected forensic pathologists, from your work on the case, from all of the reports and the holes that I found that were never fixed or asked about. Well, I ran into a wall a long time ago, so now I veered off to the other possibility, which is a third-party involvement. For right now, my investigation is going down that path, and I haven't run into any blockades yet. And that path is that someone put Lockie in the pond. It's right. It's got to be. Yep. Yeah. Why, how, when, I don't know. But you must know if that is the case. There's a fair few people that do know. Absolutely. You know, there's an old adage, somebody knows something. Well, yeah, but somebody does. They haven't come forward yet. I'm hoping they do. I'm hoping they can trust me enough to tell me what they know. You know, I'm not going to air them out. I've made that perfectly clear on this podcast. Your information is safe with me. If there's something that you need to say, say it. A three-year-old little boy is dead and nobody knows why or how. If that doesn't weigh on your conscience, you don't have a soul. You just don't. Thank you very much, Karen, for the interview. Is there anything you'd like to add? If you have information, contact Melanie Reed. She'll put you in contact with me and I'm happy to talk to you. I'm not gonna quit. Anybody who knows me will tell you, you think I'm going to give up on this? You got another thing coming. At the time of completing these nine episodes of The Boy in the Water, numerous attempts have been made to get an interview with police and find answers to our questions. 
They've always come back with the same response. Police are not able to comment on aspects related directly to the investigation as they are subject to an ongoing coronial inquiry. But they have told us in their response to questions about Senior Sergeant Cynthia Fairley's involvement in the case that all sub-area commanders readily come to assist when serious incidents arise as they have extensive knowledge of the community and the geography of the area. We would like to thank our listeners for supporting this podcast. We especially appreciate the feedback and find many of the comments and theories in our social media pages and in confidential emails to be very interesting. We may share some of these in a future series. Lockie's case is now sitting with Auckland-based coroner Alexander Ho. His job is to make a finding about Lockie's cause of death, but he can also call for another investigation or an inquest, which is a formal court hearing into the death. We await the coroner's decision, and in the meantime, we will continue to work behind the scenes on any follow-ups and new revelations and have them to you as we uncover them. If you'd like to contact us, please email mrinvestigates at proton.me. For more journalism that matters, including our award-winning true crime series and podcast Peter Alice, The Crash Case and Me, head to newsroom.co.nz or your favourite podcast app. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate and review our series. It helps new listeners find us. You can also follow our social media pages by searching Melanie Reed Investigates. This series is written and produced by me, Melanie Reid, along with Bonnie Sumner and Judith Curran. It's edited by Paul Entercott. Original music by Age Pryor. You're listening to The Boy in the Water, public interest journalism funded through Aotearoa New Zealand on air.